In the Gospel of Mark, uh, we begin a new expositional book study. If you're new to fellowship for us, we have a commitment to expository teaching, which means generally through the year, most of the year, we're going to be spending time in books of the Bible. We start at the beginning, we go to the end, and we take it paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. And in this way, for us, we believe we truly get the whole counsel of God, not just little parts, but, but His whole mind and word to us. Now, my purpose today, I want you to know, lower your expectations a bit, is, is preparatory. We're just, we're just getting started. I'm going to lay some groundwork that we're going to be building on for, gosh, we're going to be in this till May, June of, of, of next year. Of course, we'll take some breaks along the way around Christmas and other spots. Um, but I want to give us a, a big picture of, of, the, of the gospel of Mark. It's always good to, to see the whole before we look at the parts. And then we're going to consider how Mark begins how does he begin his account of the life of Christ? I'm going to do three things today, if you'd put these kind of in your mind's eye. I'm going to start by answering the question, why? Why Mark? Why now? Tons of answers. I'll offer you one. Secondly, we'll give the overview. I'll, I'll give you a 30,000-foot view of the gospel of Mark so that we see how it begins, how it ends, and how it's put together in the whole, okay? And then finally, we will do an introduction. I'm going to take the first eight verses of Mark's gospel account in verses, verses one through eight, and we're going we're gonna to go, okay, he's got a rather unusual beginning. What does the unusual beginning say to us and, and call us to? So question, or the question answered, the overview, the introduction, okay? Let's start here. If, if you leave uh, today with some sense of, of anticipation, just, just some sense of, I, I'm looking forward to this account of, of Jesus' life in Mark. You leave with some sense of anticipation. Also coupled with a sober trepidation. Then I think we'll have, we'll have heard from the Lord. It's going to be both and. Well, why Mark? The question first. About two years ago, I read Hampton Side's uh, uh, historic uh, novel uh, that traced the uh, journey of the USS Jeanette. The book was called The Kingdom of Ice. Uh, the USS Jeanette was uh, captained by uh, Lieutenant George uh, DeLong uh, on July 8, 1879. 33 men set sail from San Francisco Bay and uh, so they're over on the western side for you, San Francisco Bay, and they journeyed north toward the Bering Sea. <clears throat> now, DeLong spent five years. So it's like as long, you said, five years that we've been going to the church. Just imagine over those last five years, this man had been preparing for this expedition. And of course, one of the most important things he needed to prepare was determining what maps he would use to navigate a path to the north pole. This was the, um, you know, it was America's attempt to be the first on the Arctic. We're talking the top of the world, the North Pole. There was a German cartographer, uh, August Heinrich Petermann, map maker, map maker. and uh, he had uh, a, um, a theory 
that there was a warm current that would go up and would go into the Bering Sea and through it. And this warm current at a certain times of year would actually melt a pathway through the outer ring of ice. So, you know, they knew it was ice up there, but they thought it was an outer ring at the time. No satellite photos, no one's been. But he thought that this warm current would, would, would make an opening so that you could sail through the ring of ice and you would pop out into what they believed at the time was the polar sea. Again, thought there was a, a polar sea at the top that you could sail through. Now, DeLong based his whole expedition on Peterman's maps. Within two months of heading into the Bering Sea, well, not two months, several months, took him to get up there, but within months, this boat was trapped in ice. Y'all, they spent two years trapped in ice. They didn't go anywhere other than as the current moved the big ice sheets around. Two years until finally the ice pierced the ship, the ship sank, and what began as an expedition now became a struggle for survival. Y'all, uh, thir- uh, 13 men would make it out alive. I would read this book at night under a comforter and covers, and I would get cold. It's just, it just what they went through, it just made my body cold. See, they expected a, what, he, what they called a thermometric gateway. It's the name he gave it. What they got was a kingdom of ice. Uh, Hampton Sides writes this, when the ice locked them in, the team had to, quote, shed its organizing ideas in all their unfounded romance and replace them with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is, end quote. Why, Mark? Because I, I suspect that all of us, to some degree, have expectations, uh, have preconceived notions, even, uh, even some of us have some unfounded romantic ideas of who Jesus is and what he said and what it means to follow him that are, that are kind of like thermometric gateways. It's not what he meant. It's not what he said. And all of us over time, whether you're in the church, I mean, I'm in the, I have these ideas at times and we all do, whether in church, out of the church, that, that kind of accumulate like barnacles on us and shape our view of Jesus. And those views are some are simply not true. And when we get, you know, stuck in the ice spiritually, I'll say it this way, you get stuck spiritually, we find ourselves saying something like this, don't raise your hand if you've ever said it, only I will raise it, because I have said it. I get this stuck in the ice and I go, you know, the Christian life's not working for me not working. And Mark, more so than any of the other gospel accounts, honestly, it's just got this arresting voice that stops our spiritual expedition and causes us to see Jesus, to shed our organizing ideas of how we thought, I thought that's what he meant when he said that, or this is who he is, and to change the quote a bit, replace them with a reckoning of who Jesus truly is and what it means 
for our lives. And therefore, you see on the screens, our theme, our title for the series, Following the Servant King. But don't miss the middle part, how Jesus's life redefines our own. Let me set this on the very front end. We are not, nor do we ever come to the Bible in this way, but we're not coming to Mark to learn more about Jesus, per se. We're coming to Mark so that Jesus may redefine our lives. That's the bottom line. This is not about being informed. It's about being transformed by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who Eric said creation was through him and for him and to him. And man, when we come face to face with him, it's we who change, not him. Well, uh, why this book? A number of answers to that question, but I offer that one. How about, how about an overview? You know, it's always, it's, it's so helpful when we begin a book study, especially when we're going to be in it for a year, to see the whole, right? And then as we study the pieces, we're always relating the pieces to the whole of the book. I could do no better than to show you a visual representation of the book of Mark through a group called the Bible Project. Some of you are going to ask me this later, so write it down. The Bible Project. You can, you can Google it, et cetera. They do an, they're doing amazing work, and they do in five minutes what I couldn't do in 50 minutes. And so I'm going to ask you just to watch and listen. But I want you to watch and listen for two things in particular. I want you to listen for how the book is organized. It really, in other words, Mark, you know, has a reason for this and this and this. And as we study it, we're going to go, oh, that's why he organized it the way he did. By the way, it's the shortest gospel, so he left a lot out. So we'll see how it's organized. And the second thing I want you to be thinking about as you watch this is I want you to notice the, uh, the great challenge. It's like this challenge that was before the disciples all the way through the book and how they dealt with this challenge of being face-to-face with Jesus. Let's watch this together. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but 
As you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? He was not what they expected. And they missed it. How about for us? Organized, you know, keep in mind, identity, right? His identity And then his purpose. We'll be unpacking that all the way through the gospel account. I want you to to think about something for a moment. You know, they had this idea, the the, the Jews did, there was a thermometric gateway. (laughs) That's what the Messiah would be. 
he wasn't. And so for, think of the disciples themselves, ponder this. For three and a half years, y'all, they walked with him, they talked with him, they asked him questions, he answered the questions. They saw him do miracles, they touched him, they smelled him, they slept, you know, traveling. And three and a half, by the end of three and a half years, they didn't get it. Clearly, in that day, it was possible to physically be with the king of kings and miss him. Now, my question is, is it possible today? Is it possible to teach in the learning center, to lead worship, to teach the Bible and miss him? I think it is. And I'll tell you, that question is going to be in front of us over and over and over again as we move through this gospel. We've answered the question, why Mark? We have looked at an overview and the structure. So we'll look quickly now at the introduction. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at Mark's unusual beginning, I'll have a couple applications for us, his unusual beginning and uh, what it means for us. As you turn there, let me give you just a few introductory comments to the gospel itself, as I'm, if I may, and we'll pick up more as we go. We always want to know who he's writing to, and, and we need to note he's writing to uh, primarily <coughs> Roman Christians in Rome. That's pretty well agreed upon by interpreters, that he's writing to Roman Christians in Rome. Now, probably around 60 to 70 AD, somewhere in there prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's very important for us to put that in our mind's eye because at this time, uh, there was a tremendous amount of of persecution. If you know a little bit of this, a little bit of history at that time, uh, Nero ruled and in 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome. It burned they got it under control, and then it started burning again. When it was all over, 80% of Rome was burned. And it's massive, 80%. And this is not, you know, a myth, mythbuster thing. This is a historical fact. And, uh, of course, uh, who, who started this thing? Well, many suspected that Nero started it. And you go, why would a guy do that? Well, you got to understand the kind of person he was, that he started it for a building project, and then he had to blame someone. So who would Nero blame was behind the burning of Rome? The Christians, you know, the Gentile Christians primarily in Rome. You know, these anti-social, anti-religious, I mean, they only have one God. Where's the rest of them? You know, that kind of thing. And so it was at this time that you can read in your history books that the Christians were persecuted in unbelievably cruel ways, whether it was being garbed in animal skins and then dogs turned loose so that the dogs attacked the animals and killed them, whether it was being dipped in pitch and tar, which I can't even fathom, such that you become a kerosene lamp. A human body is a lamp that lights the city. It's beyond our understanding, but this is what he did. Or they were put, you know these stories, they were put in the Colosseum and people watched lions eat them. Therefore, the church at this time would meet secretly in the catacombs, right? Things like that. This is the culture, and this is, this is the letter that came to that group. It's the shortest of the Gospels. It's the first account of Jesus' life. Matthew, 
and Luke borrowing from Mark even when they wrote their accounts. He writes with an unusual sense of urgency. You're going to see this when you read it. He uses a Greek word that's translated in the New American Standard immediately. Maybe in your Bible it's translated straightway, straightway, immediately, immediately, you know, immediately, 42 times. In these 16 chapters, he's going to use immediately. Y'all, the, the word is used only 12 times in the whole rest of the New Testament. What's, what's it about? <laughs> Why does he just keep going immediately, immediately, immediately? If you read the Gospel of Mark, you can read it in about an hour and a half. And you will feel like you have been on a plane ride that was nothing but turbulence. Jerk, left, right, up, down, all the way through it. Mark, you see, is, while he, he has more teaching than all the other gospel accounts and uses that word often, he doesn't actually have the words of his teaching. It's all about his actions, such that we can say he's more concerned with what Jesus did than what he said. And in the end, what, do we, what can we gather from that? In the end, I think Mark wants us to understand that we are faced with a person, not with a philosophy, not with a list of do's and don'ts, but with a person you think about that. You know, it's, you know, sometimes it's easy to say no or have a disagreement and shoot the email or the text. But how difficult to sit with someone and then look them in the eye and say, no, I don't want to follow you. No, I don't. No, it's not going to work. You're not going to work. for. See, we're faced with the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Well, Mark comes out of the shoots unlike any other gospel. Follow along as I read it. When you see this word preaching, the word literally means he was yelling emotionally. That's what he was doing out in the wilderness. It's coming from his gut when he's preaching his message. Follow along as I read God's word to us today. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Christos, Messiah, Son of God, God-man. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Here's a marker in the text. The original audience, they would, they would know something that doesn't come to us immediately. But if I said this to you, it's like this. If I said to you, hey, he had, he had on a coonskin cap, who would you think of? Who would we think of if I say he had on a coonskin cap? Who comes to your mind? Yeah, it, it, I, I did this last week and, and I go, yeah, Daniel Boone. Someone come up to me afterwards and says, well, why not Davy Crockett? You know, so, so we got two here we get, don't we? Daniel Boone, Davy. When they read this description, I want to tell you something. They had one person in mind. Elijah. This is Elijah. And this will matter later when we read that it was no image. It was true. They thought of this as Elijah, for indeed in many ways he was. 
verse 7. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who's mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And on and on, you know, with that kind of energy and passion, he preached. Now, take away a few things from this introduction. The first is this, note verse one. When we read Mark, we the readers know things that the characters in the story don't know yet. I mean, you read the first verse and we know who Jesus is. He is Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, it doesn't, it's not clear to those who are in the story. We've got to keep that in mind. Uh, I don't know about you, but do you ever read the gospel accounts and get a little frustrated with the disciples? Anybody, you know, I am embarrassed to say it, but you know, sometimes I go, really? Really? You, wait, wait, I mean, you just held the little fish and bread and fed 10,000 plus, and now you're worried about, you know, and I, I, as if I would do any different, so to speak. Uh, David Garland, I think, has a great word of caution, and I'll offer it because we're just beginning. He writes, quote, the prologue briefly lets the reader in on what are otherwise secrets that will remain hidden to various degrees to all of the characters in the drama that follows. Because we who read know who Jesus is, our failure to follow and obey makes us more culpable than the characters in the story. End quote. Ouch. And thank you, David Garland, for that reminder. The Old Testament quote we read here is actually from Malachi and Isaiah. It's not unusual for them to take the more prominent prophet and use simply that name. It tells us this, 500 years before Jesus arrives, Isaiah and Malachi said, there will be someone who comes first. In other words, Messiah, when he comes, will not just show up at the door unannounced. No, we're going to send someone who will announce him and prepare the way. And for this Roman audience, this is absolutely normative, which is God using the culture in which things are happening, things they understand. You see, they know that the Caesar, a dignitary, would never show up in Capernaum or Jerusalem without first being announced, uh, uh, someone, a forerunner coming beforehand to say, Caesar's coming, clean up the roads, hey, pick up the trash in the streets, dignitary's coming, you see. So God using the, the cultural norm to prepare for Messiah, it was last October. I, I've mentioned this. I think I got to I got to go on a go, go on a hunting trip actually to Bolivia. But it was also a trip where we were visiting compassion sites. It was with uh, Greg Ham and he and his wife Pam had sponsored these amazing compassion sites there. We were in uh, La Paz, Bolivia, and we were going out into the country to this lodge. And as we were moving through the city, we came to the outskirts of the city. And on the outskirts of the city, you know, we were away from the big buildings, but there were still just buildings everywhere and shops and garages and, you know, houses, et cetera. Not houses like we think of them here, but and they're not adobe huts by any means, but, you know, it's just a different look. And we're going along. And uh, right in the middle of the outskirts of the city, 
I'm in the right-hand side of the van, and we're going this way. And you look out, and there is a, a, a field, so to speak, but in the middle is a giant concrete, it's like, it looks like a runway, because it's 50 yards across, it's fenced all the way around, and it's just concrete, just going like this through the middle. And the concrete itself is 30, 40 yards wide. And uh, I mean, it, it, honestly, it looked like you could land a 747 on this thing. And it kept going. And, you know, we're driving and mile, two miles. It's still there. There's no one on it. All the houses and stuff are on each side of it. It's absolutely abandoned. Had no idea what it was. Came to find out the Pope had visited Bolivia in July of that very year, last year. And they built that for his parade. Not, it didn't land a plane there, but they, they built it for his parade. You see, that, they, they prepared the way for the Pope, you see. There's a saying that the British have, wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. And it's, tr- it's literally true. And so this is what's happening with John the Baptist. And it's clear that his preparatory work was not build the roads, quite frankly. You know, he says, you know, make the way straight, etc. What, what's he concerned with? It's not physical infrastructure there, is it? He's concerned with the heart. <laughs> See, it's prepare your way. <laughs> don't, don't go pick up the trash out there. Let's address the trash in here. Will you be ready for Messiah when he comes, it's clear that Israel's greatest problem's not Rome, is it? And he says it here, the greatest problem is sin. And that's what Messiah comes to deal with. Now, uh, we want to be careful here. He talks about, you know, they were, they were uh, preaching, a, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, his baptism, forgive our sins, and those kind of things. We want to be careful. Greek uh, scholar Kenneth Wiest writes this. Quote, we must be careful to note that the baptism of which we are now speaking is not Christian baptism, but baptism connected with Israel and its acceptance of Messiah, end quote. So let's be careful as we interpret this. Um, in the Old Testament, when a, when a non-Jew wanted to become a Jew, a, a proselyte, you know, they would have a number of things they had to do, including being circumcised and have a sacrifice, but then uh, they, they, they were dipped, they were baptized to, to represent their cleansing, you see, so that they now are a Jew. There are uh, these, these mikvah baths in uh, in Jerusalem, even even today, that that, that uh, the, the the priest would dip himself in a, a measure of cleansing before he went in. The high priest or the day of atonement or priest, you know, daily going in. So there's this idea of baptism is 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 familiar. It's not like they're go- the Jews are going. I what's what the heck's baptism? They had some idea of what that was. Um, Hebert D. Edmund Hebert, outstanding commentary, says this. Quote, the baptism of repentance is a baptism characterized by repentance. His baptism was not intended to induce repentance, but rather it was administered to those who were repentant. Repentance is more than grief or regret for sin. It is a deep change of mind, an altered attitude towards sin, which has its proper fruit in a deliberate change of conduct for the better, end quote. 
repentance, metanoia. What, what, what's the idea? And we've talked about this. Repentance is, is going one way. You're going one way, but you t- have a turn and you go the other way. You're going away from God. You repent. You turn from that way and go toward God. It is a change of mind with a resultant change of behavior action. And this was, this was John's preaching to Israel. This is, a, is, this is a Jewish baptism, you see. If I could change the way it's said, maybe it'll help us. It's like John saying, speaking to Israel, you Jews who think you are right with God, you're not. You think, you're, you think God's pleased. You're, you're not right with God. You think the Gentiles are the ones who need to repent. No, Israel, you need to repent and turn from your ways. That makes sense. See, the repentance was not, it didn't forgive their sins. It represented when they were, when they were baptized, they were identifying themselves, those who were, with a repentant Israel in need of forgiveness. And in that way, their hearts were prepared for Messiah who's come to pay the penalty for their sins. Uh, think about the geography. This is, this is fascinating even, thinking about the geography of the story. Where is this all happening? In the what? In the wilderness. What was Israel in the wilderness? They were a disobedient people. And what did they cross before they came into the promised land? What river? Do you see that in the story? It's like, those, it's like they're, they're geographically going, okay, we're in the promised land. But you know what? Those are in the promised land. We're out of sync with God. I'm, I'm now in the wilderness, a recognition that while I'm a Jew, I am disobedient to God. I am out of fellowship with God. And so in the wilderness, I, I need a new coming into the promised land. You see, it's just beautiful geographical images that are happening here. Hey, I may be in the promised land, but you know what? I'm still in bondage in Egypt. Oh God, I turn from my ways. That speaks to us even out of the geography itself. And I think this leads us to our own, maybe a little bit of application here, if I may offer this. Because we look at this and go, okay, that was historic. They had to get ready for the Lord. But I want to ask you today, are you ready for the Lord? Is your heart prepared? And you go, well, Lloyd, I, I did that 14 years ago. I prepared my heart and trusted you. No, I'm, I'm talking about prepared today, every day. Is your heart prepared? Now, what, what do I mean by this? Okay. Um, how many of us think that there are, there are days that we cannot sin? How, don't raise your hand. But how many of us think we can make it through a day and not sin? Just think about that. You know, I thought when I was doing this last week, and I didn't think of this earlier in the week, but I thought, well, if I was under anesthesia for the whole day, and even then, though, I thought, you know what that stuff can do to you? It can make you say things. <laughs> so, like, I don't think you can do it under anesthesia. So, if, if, we, if we readily acknowledge that none of us make it through a day without sin, and repentance has to do with sin, repentance has to do with, I've sinned, I'm going to... I'm going to change, I'm going to change my 
thoughts about that. I want to turn and recognize I want to go toward God. And confession, you know, confession means agreeing with what God says about sin. I'm going to agree with what God says about sin. Then here's my next question. How many of us think you can go through a day without repenting? See, I'm talking to myself. I can go weeks without genuine repentance. Weeks without genuine repentance. Hello? See, and so our hearts are, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Don't, don't go paranoid on me. Don't, don't get all hung up and go, oh my gosh, I need, to, I need to repent before I walk out the door. I need to repent here. It's like whack-a-mole. Oh my gosh, every thought, everything's coming. It's not what it is. It's a sense wherein the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We repent. And it's not a whack-a-mole repent. It's the graciousness of God. God's, what, what leads us to repentance according to the Bible? God's what? God's whack or God's kindness? It's God's kindness, you see. And so it's in, it's, it's in his kindness that we turn. And what do we do? We live out what we just sang. And we, you know, I'm going, Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus, I need you. Oh, can we ever get enough of that? I don't think so. So it even challenges us, even as he comes out of the shoots, to ask ourselves, how prepared is my heart to walk with Jesus? I've known him for a long time. And he invites me to know him afresh, always anew, more of Jesus. Now, John makes clear that the one coming after him is greater than him. We'll we'll talk more about that later in in the book. And he goes as far as he can on that last sentence where he says his baptism is with water, but the one coming after him is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Just think about it this way. Water baptism is, is an outward sign, quite frankly, you know, of cleansing. It's a picture of that in, in this, even this particular baptism, which isn't Christian baptism, but it's outward. It's temporary. The one coming after him, John says, is a baptism by the Spirit. Who in the world could baptize by the Spirit but God, the Holy Spirit? Who, who could See, it's, this is the God-man coming, and it's not temporary. It's transformational. It's inward. It's of the heart. There's our introduction. Let me leave you with a question, okay? You can close up your notes, anything. You don't need to write anything down here. I just want you thinking. I'm going to ask you a question, and I think this question can get us at what I said earlier about how is it that we can walk with Jesus, read about Jesus, know Jesus, and miss Jesus. I think this can kind of help us get there in a way. And I'm thinking now of the entire book and the, and, and the structure of the book, that, that, that identity, that purpose, that whole, you know, the book's three and a half years of his life. Y'all know that he goes for, for like 11 chap, uh, 10 chapters is three and a half years. And then 11 through 16, you know how long that is? A week. This is the passion. This is the, all of that. But I think we can get, it can kind of lead us toward that, answering that question, how can we miss Jesus? How does that happen? Well, I've got two columns up on the screen for you to look at. Look at those two columns. And uh, I want you to answer this question. I want you to look at those columns as a life. Like there's a life on the left, there's a life on the right. Okay? You with me? You seeing that? Now, here's the question for you. You can only choose one life. So which life would you choose? A life characterized by the left or a life characterized by the right? This is a (laughs) no-brainer. The left 
one, you know, in our, I think, honestly, we'd go, well, I want the left one, you see. But here's, here's what we learn through Mark's gospel. See, the Jews, it was an easy answer. It was the left, I mean, they'd been living under the right one, and it's like Messiah's here, thermometric gateway to the polar sea that didn't exist. That's not who Messiah was. But they chose the left life and they missed Jesus. What does Mark's gospel show us and invite us to? That Jesus chose the right column over and over. This is the good news. And he chose it for us. Because in choosing that column, of course, he paid the penalty for our sin. Eric said it earlier. He died on our behalf. And he rose again. Now, here's what I don't want us to miss. And this is where I hope it creates a measure of trepidation in me and us as we begin this study. If we're going to reckon Christ and the Christian life as he truly is and as it truly is, to follow the servant king is to not just believe that, you know what, he lived. It's not just to say, you know what, he lived this life for me. It's to stand here and daily go, I'll follow him and choose this life for me. And what we find all through the book is that in dying, we live. That in losing, we gain. That in weakness is power. That in submission is influence. That in death is life. I'm going to tell you something. Choosing that left is supernatural. (laughs) Only done by the power of the Spirit who lives in us. This is going to be the invitation of Mark's gospel over and over and over. Let's stand. Uh, I I just want to dismiss you with the key verse of the whole book, and it's already been spoken in our video. But this would be our prayer, that following the servant king, uh, we would experience what he experienced, not just in this life, uh, but in the life to come. Let me say this because it's a, it's a heavy message. You know, you, it's like, well, are we going to spend the next year just defeated and weak and powerless? <laughs> I hope so. Because Jesus overcame that, you see. Please understand this. It's not that we have to wait till heaven to experience life, power. It's not, we don't wait till then. But I, but I must say this. That left column 
we don't experience in its fullness until heaven. But we experience it truly in this life. And it's as we live that life that we extend the kingdom of God on this planet. And let me tell you something, that's why we're here. It's why we're here. Lord, may this be true of us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May we follow the servant king. God bless.